Ransomware hits Atlanta, Baltimore's 911 system, as well as aviation giant Boeing. Plus, WikiLeaks and its founder get taken for a ride by Russian intelligence. These stories and more coming up on the ISMG Security Report. Hi, I'm Matthew Schwartz. Ransomware remains a potent money-making opportunity, at least to judge by recent attacks. High-profile victims have apparently included aviation giant Boeing. Baltimore's 911 emergency system was also hit, as was the city of Atlanta, which on March 22nd appeared to have been infected with a variant of SamSam ransomware, with attackers demanding $51,000 to furnish a decryption key. Here's Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms providing an update earlier this week in a press conference. When we became aware of this cyber incident last week, we immediately assigned an incident response team that has been working literally around the clock. And quite frankly, one of the biggest challenges to our team has been to please do not burn yourselves out. Atlanta's mayor has not ruled out paying the attackers to get a decryption key. But she says the city does now have many systems restored. Some crucial capabilities, however, such as an online portal where residents can pay their water bill or for parking tickets, remains offline, as does the free Wi-Fi at Atlanta International Airport. Information security experts have questioned whether the city had devoted sufficient resources to information security. Security experts have noted that city systems had exposed Windows Server Message Block, or SMB, as well as remote desktop protocols to the internet, which one expert says no sane organization would ever do. That appears to be a repeat of last year after Microsoft released emergency patches for SMB version 1, which was being exploited by Eternal Blue, a flaw that would later be targeted by the WannaCry ransomware. Last year, Atlanta failed to apply those critical patches for at least a month. So says cybersecurity firm Rendition Infosec, which was scanning the internet at the time, looking for vulnerable systems so that it could help alert organizations to patch them. Rendition reports that at least five Atlanta City systems last year, including its webmail server, were compromised by attackers. But the city of Atlanta isn't the only organization struggling to keep its systems secure. Earlier this week, Chicago-based Boeing, the world's biggest aerospace company, said that it had dealt with what it called a limited intrusion of malware that affected a small number of systems. According to a leaked memo, its factory in North Charleston, South Carolina, was hit by what looked like a variant of WannaCry. Also this week, officials in Baltimore admitted that the city's 9-11 dispatch system went down for 17 hours last weekend. Frank Johnson, the city's CIO, blamed the outage on ransomware perpetrators and said the city got caught out after an IT worker made an internal change to a firewall that an attacker was able to exploit, resulting in the dispatch system becoming crypto-locked. The city says it has contained and repaired the damage and has yet to receive any ransom demands. Atlanta, meanwhile, has promised to improve its information security posture to block future attempts to crypto-lock its systems. This is much bigger than a ransomware attack. This really is an attack on our government, which means it's an attack on all of us. And we just want to continue to be thoughtful and will continue to be thoughtful to make sure that as a city, that we are doing all that we need to do to make sure that we are secure going forward. We know that anytime you're dealing with cyber issues that it's fluid because each day there are thousands of people who work, who wake up 
um, intent to do harm on systems throughout the world. And as I've said um, repeatedly, we certainly are not the first to experience this and likely will not be the last. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Just how much money are ransomware gangs earning? New research aims to shed some light on that question. Here's ISMG Executive Editor Jeremy Kirk with more. Ransomware isn't an easy area to study. Victims rarely publicize their anguish, and cyber criminals running campaigns don't publish annual revenue reports. Most figures estimate it's a billion-dollar industry, but no one knows for sure. But an academic study shows interesting insights into the economy and infrastructure behind ransomware, which may help design defenses against it. The research studied the entire cycle of ransomware from the point at which a computer was infected to the final destination of ransom funds. Over a two-year period, the researchers conclude that at least $16 million in ransoms was paid from nearly 20,000 victims. South Korea appeared to be a locale that was disproportionately affected, with $2.5 million in payments alone going to a family of ransomware known as Cerber. Damon McCoy is an assistant professor in the Computer Science and Engineering Department at New York University. He says the study is a very conservative snapshot of the ransomware economy. We knew that we were going to arrive at an underestimate. But we wanted to, again, kind of produce this underestimate as a very rigorous lower bound as to how much they're earning. Ransoms are usually demanded in the virtual currency Bitcoin. Bitcoin transactions are sort of anonymous. Payments are made from one 32-character address to another, which are recorded in the blockchain, which is the digital ledger of all transactions. The study relied on taking Bitcoin addresses supplied to ransomware victims and tracing the transfers through Bitcoin's blockchain. The researchers also purposely infected their own test machines and made micropayments in Bitcoin to see where the money flowed. One challenge for those running ransomware campaigns is exchanging Bitcoin for cash. Virtual currency exchanges are coming under increasing scrutiny from regulators, and many now follow anti-money laundering and know-your-customer requirements. Unsurprisingly, the most popular place for ransomware Bitcoin to end up was BTCE. The Russia-based exchange shut down last July after one of its operators was indicted in the U.S. Ransomware may have been displaced in the headlines by malware that mines virtual currency, but McCoy says it doesn't appear the scheme will recede as long as some victims feel a necessity to pay. As long as there's people that don't back up their files, I think ransomware, unfortunately, is going to be a fairly profitable industry. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. Is the U.S. privacy rule called HIPAA due for a change? Three key HIPAA policy initiatives are being examined by officials at the Department of Health and Human Services Office for Civil Rights. I'm joined by my colleague, Marianne McGee, Executive Editor of Healthcare Info Security. Marianne, hello. And what changes are HHS officials weighing? Well, there's three items that they're looking at in terms of considering issuing notices of proposed rulemaking. And then that's in two areas. One of those two areas is a notice of proposed rulemaking involving dropping the current HIPAA privacy rule requirement that says that covered entities or you know healthcare providers, hospitals, doctors need to collect from their patients a signed receipt 
that the patients received a copy of the doctor's or the hospital's notice of privacy practices. And the notice of privacy practices are, you know, among those stack of papers that you get when you go to a doctor, especially for the first time. Currently, the patients need to sign the receipt and then the healthcare entities need to hold on to those signed forms as proof. The other notice of proposed rulemaking that they're considering involves good faith disclosures by healthcare entities when a patient is for un- unable perhaps or has not given authorization to share their information with a family member or a loved one in situations where Perhaps the patient is incapacitated. Maybe they've had a drug overdose or some other sort of issue where the doctor would use reasonable medical judgment and good faith to decide, well, you know, this family member really needs to know about what's going on with this patient in order for this patient to get the appropriate treatment. That's one of the rulemaking considerations that OPCR is looking at right now. Currently, doctors in hospitals can make these judgments, but it's not written down that they can do it. Therefore, a lot of these doctors and hospitals sort of err on the side of caution. They'll be more close-mouthed about incidents that maybe they can really share information to family members. So they're being super clear about this privacy nuance or ability that doctors have so that they can communicate information without worrying about running afoul of HIPAA? That's correct. And one of the areas that sort of falls into is the whole opiate drug situation that we have in the country. President Trump declared it a public health emergency, but there's also been other crises or episodes of, you know, extreme situations, whether there are the shootings that have happened and doctors often struggle about disclosing information to a patient's family member if the the patient isn't in any condition to say, yeah, you know, you can share my information with this person. So they've got to make some tough decisions often. And OCR is just looking to clarify that if these doctors and hospitals and other healthcare providers disclose patient information in good faith, using reasonable medical considerations that OCR won't go after them later saying that you've broken the rules. Now, for organizations that do break the rules, the funds that are collected from settlements or civil monetary penalties, historically, those have gone to pay for enforcement costs, right? But one of the proposals here is to maybe reroute some of those funds to other places. That's correct. The High Tech Act of 2009 allows OCR to use the money that it collects from its HIPAA settlements and civil monetary penalties to fund OCR, other enforcement activities, but also Congress authorized OCR to take a percentage of that money that's collected and share it with victims of the various breaches that we see and other violations. To date, they haven't done that, but OCR is looking at how to do this. They're issuing a request for information to the public on what are some ideas? How would we be able to compensate breach victims? And how much money would we provide for them? Would it be money to perhaps cover an extended length of ID theft protection monitoring? Would it be a percentage of money associated with the damages that someone suffered? This is all left in the air right now, and OCR is trying to determine what to do. 
Do you think this would be a good move? A lot of data breach lawsuit settlements in the States, victims might expect to see $5, $10. I don't know if it might be similar with HHS and some of these HIPAA settlements. Well, that's a good point. If you have a large breach and it affected you know, tens of thousands of people, and in some cases we've seen breaches that affect tens of millions of people, how much would an individual actually see from any of these collections that OCR makes? And does it in some ways minimize how impactful a breach was if you're only getting a $5 check in the mail? Marianne, thanks very much for your time and insights. Thanks, Matt. What do you do when a six-year house guest meddles in geopolitical affairs after he'd signed an agreement saying he wouldn't do so? Well, take away his internet access. At least, that's what the Ecuadorian embassy in London has done to Julian Assange after he took to Twitter to decry the arrest of a Catalan separatist politician. Assange has been living in Ecuador's embassy in London since June 2012, when he voluntarily sought refuge there to escape extradition to Sweden to face allegations of sex crimes. Losing his embassy internet access, not for the first time, is just one of the latest setbacks facing WikiLeaks and its self-aggrandizing leader. Alan Woodward, a computer science professor at the University of Surrey, says there's a growing body of evidence that Russian intelligence, including its Guccifer 2.0 persona, actively used WikiLeaks as a tool for meddling in the 2016 U.S. elections. WikiLeaks has kind of fallen from, they certainly lost the public, the vast majority of public support because they've been shown a number of times to be effectively stooges, albeit unwitting, I think, stooges for the Russians. And Guccifer was one of their big leaks. And this just shows that they were being fed a line. They were serving somebody else's agenda. So no matter who you are, you've got to be incredibly careful because you can just be taken for a ride. That's the ISMG Security Report. Our theme is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Matthew Schwartz. Catch you next time. Oh, 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 o